Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of Anthro to UX. Today, I'm here with Ender Reichart. Uh, Ender is a UX researcher at Google, currently, previously at LivePerson, Amazon, and AnthroTech in the Seattle-ish area. Um, so, Ender, thanks for joining me today. As I do with everyone, could you please let us know a little bit about your journey first into anthropology? Sure. And thank you for having me, Matt. Um, so, I graduated from the University of Chicago in 2015, did a brief stint as a postdoc in Japan, and then I uh, realized I didn't want to stay in academia, just given the current lack of demand for Japan area studies specialties um, was not really a thing in the United States and wanted to start a family. I wanted to have stability in my life, not move around every other month or every other year. So got a job through a previous um, advisor that was working at a nonprofit called Battelle in the area of aging. So it was a good bridge to non-academia and was specifically in the healthcare space. Um, so I did that for a year, but being in the Seattle area, there is a lot of tech and I kept hearing about this thing called UX. There are a lot of meetup events uh, and I attended one of those and people were referring to themselves as anthropologists, even though they had only taken intro to cultural anthropology 101 in undergrad and I was thinking to myself, well, I actually am an anthropologist, so if I were to get into this field, wouldn't that be great? So I started to look for jobs, and funny enough, there's a company called Anthrotech, great company. Um, it's a small, smaller agency in the Seattle area, and they had an opening, and um, that's my entrance into UX, and I had a lot of great opportunities to try out a lot of different projects, a lot of variety of methodologies and um, collaborations with different UX profession professions like design and like management and quantitative UX. Uh, and so it was like a rapid hands-on course in UX research. And from there, I wanted to stay in UX, but go more towards emerging technologies. Another aspect of my Dissertation was on um, science and technology studies, so I wanted to get back into that space. I always find it very intriguing how humans interact with technologies, especially when there isn't a precedence in uh, mental models for engaging with that technology to really understand um, how to build one, how to work with existing patterns of engagement and build out an experience from there. And so I went into Amazon. I worked on uh, Alexa, which is their conversational AI, and was there for a year, after which I moved to live person, which was conversational AI as well. And now I'm in the cloud space at Google. 
Yeah, very cool. Well, thanks for the introduction. And there's a lot to, to dig into there. So to kind of go back to the PhD a bit. So, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of knew that you didn't want to, to stay in academia and you reference, uh, you know, the lack of jobs, which is quite frankly, one of the reasons for starting, you know, this podcast, right, to try and help people realize earlier on in their process that uh, there are these other jobs out there because so many people graduate and then are kind of looking around and trying to sort of figure out what to do next since there are fewer jobs today in academia, many fewer. Um, and then at that point, you have to try and figure out like, yeah, things pretty pretty late in the game and you're already looking for a job. So it's kind of difficult, right? And so to, to just focus on that a bit, um, so... You know, you thankfully sort of, you know, learn through some connections, like a a path forward, but of course not everybody does. So what do you think, you know, coming from like a kind of classically, you know, classical kind of anthropology PhD program, uh, you know, what do you think we could be doing different in that space that might help better train anthropologists to to get into work like UX? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Uh, It was... So I I did end up having a pretty smooth transition, but there were a good six months before. So basically, once I started my postdoc, before then, I knew I didn't want to continue down the academic path. And I spent a good six months of that postdoc also applying to jobs and trying to figure out how to translate my three-page CV, you know, like academic CVs is like every possible thing you've ever written or presented and you have to get it down to one page. And then even now I struggle with this idea of like impact, like constantly people are like, but what's the impact? And I'm like, I wrote it. It's right there. That's the impact. I don't understand what you're saying. And like, I must be missing on some step about like impact, but it was really rough. And it was a lot of me hunting down um, like articles about how to go from academia to uh, like work in a company and business sector. And it was really stressful, like psychologically as well, because you feel like you're, you're failing. Like uh, I should be getting a job at, you know, I graduated from the university of Chicago. So I should be like the elite higher opportunity anywhere but that's not the case. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter how sexy your research is. Like you're still going to be most likely the person that has to go from assistant professor position or um, visiting professor, visiting faculty and moving around a lot. Um, and, and there's no stability in your work life. Like you work at all hours, even over summer vacation. Um, And I really wished that somebody, when I was a grad student, even just had like a workshop or casual like career fair where I wasn't scared to go to the career fair. Like there, there were like some things about alternative careers, but it was like too shameful to reveal that you were looking at something other than the hallowed halls of academia for your future, which I get it. Like you're, you're spending grant money. You're consuming something that should be for someone. I mean, this is like the idea, this Fulbright scholarship should be for somebody that's doing research 
to contribute back to society in some way. But that's not even what a lot of Fulbright scholars who are anthropologists end up doing. They just write a book that no one else can read except for another anthropologist. Anyway, um, I digress. But I do wish that there was just a class, like the anthropology of UX research or how to do UX research. There's so much value that anthropology could bring to UX research if it was just more clearly articulated, both on the institution side of the university and also on the corporate side where they hire these anthropologists that have PhDs at lower levels because they're like, oh, well, you have, quote, 10 years of experience being a graduate student, but we don't know that you can actually perform in a corporate setting. So we're going to put you at junior UX researcher and pay you extremely low because you're so desperate for a job. Um, yeah, that's, that's always what happens. That's tough. So you mentioned a course. So do you think a course is enough or do you think, you know, there's something else uh, that would help? It would be a start. Uh, I think there would be, it would also need to be some cross-pollination in systems of knowledge, both educating UX researchers that aren't anthropologists about some of the basic practices of anthropology beyond field research or beyond ethnography. Like I get ethnography is a big deal in UX research and in, and obviously in anthropology, but there's so much more that you learn when you're um, in a PhD program or a master's program about different theoretical frameworks to apply, how to abstract um, patterns and connect them up to like more general principles of social practice. Um, so I think that some of that work could be broken down into a course. I took theory and practice. I took, you know, methods um, when I was in, in anthropology program. And that's, that's not something that I hear anyone in UX research talking about. Uh, and like how to do analysis and how to write reports and communicate insights. Yeah, and communicate succinctly, right, for a business yeah. context as opposed to, yeah. you know, massive textual yeah. document. Um, yeah, 300 no, it page is, dissertation. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah, again, that nobody reads in the end. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people in business who end up not reading things, but at least it's short. <laughs> you know, they can mm -hmm. flip through, <laughs> see some see some things on the deck, but, um, yeah, it, you know, obviously we, uh, you know, courses would help, uh, cross pollination, as you say, um, you know, one thing I do think was very valuable from the program I went through, which was UNT was the applied projects, each course, each, at least like not the core courses, if you will, but like the sort of specialization that you were in. So business tech design for me, all those courses had projects. So you, so you really were applying the knowledge in a real life context. And even though it wasn't framed as UX, the practice of going through it with, uh, with you know, companies like Baylor Health or, um, you know, other sort of businesses was, you know, good to see how it sort of functions in, you know, in the real life, in the real business world, yeah. if you will. Um, but there is, there is certainly more, um, obviously, that can be done. Uh, recent episode, you know, with Liz Rodwell, we're talking about, you know, education and, and bringing in, you know, 
certain you know, more UX kind of courses and maybe even a track right into the process. And it does seem like yeah. there's now a few people talking about these things and we're at the start of it. But there is also the opportunity for you know a lot of us in UX to also contribute back to theory and to be publishing uh, maybe not just in anthropological journals, but, you know, in, in others, um, you know, outside of our field, it could be HCI, but, you know, just broadly speaking, there's plenty of places. And so, um, have you thought about doing any of that or are you, you know, is, is any thoughts on how we could contribute in that way? Yeah. Um, in part, I'm waiting till my kids are a little bit older, but I do have aspirations of contributing back to the, the, the industry to thought leadership to contributing to a voice and a face of how to bring together some of the more classic anthropological trainings to a space like UX research and just what I've learned as a profession in in this profession over the last several years um, working for some interesting technologies. Um, but yeah, I have a really hard time with a lot of the UX research um, publications, I, I don't know, like, I really hate empathy and I, I really hate the way we talk about ethnography. And if I have to keep talking about like the user and the user experience and user journeys, I don't know. I gotta, I gotta pivot at some point because it does get me really, gets me in knots. <laughs> Well, yeah, and maybe that's a uh, opportunity, though, for you to kind of carve out your own niche in some of that literature and you know, help make it a little bit more rigorous. And- yeah, I, w- I am thinking about I've been trying to like carve out time to write a book um, on analytical practices, like how to do analysis in UX, because like I, I mentioned earlier, there isn't really much discussion on that or much literature on the how to of doing analysis and the different um, frameworks that you can bring to the table to find some key patterns that would speak to like focused impact. Um, yeah. And that's, or even what you're doing in an unintentional way, um, could potentially bias if you're not aware of the different approaches that you put onto the work you're doing. Well, I would certainly look forward to seeing that book. Um, but to go back for the moment to your me to the work you did, <laughs> yeah, we we all have lots of things we probably want to get to. Hopefully, some of those projects come to light one day. Uh, no, that's usually yes. the case with most people I talk to. I have my own, of course. Um, yeah. But so curious to, to go back to the now the PhD research. So it was in assistive technology. Um, so given there, you know, the tech component, if you will, um, mm. did much of that work. Uh, prep you in any way for UX? Uh, it gave me, at like at a minimum, a shiny exterior to recruiters. I would say to be able to talk about assistive technologies in my resume and say that I I worked on incorporation of um, assistive technologies to home modifications and also in. Um, assisting adult, older adults in taking part in society and being mobile without having to create a conforming physical environment. Um, 
it was, I think, sexy enough to intrigue someone that is picking up applicants to say, oh, this person has, quote, practical experience doing research in tech. Yeah. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, because I definitely have never looked into assistive technology, but I'd imagine some of it is actually like quite, quote unquote, low tech from an information technology perspective, you know, where maybe some others yeah. is, you know, more you know, IT related. Um, and so was it just sort of the word technology that was in there that kind of wowed them, you know, if you will, like, or kind of helped convince them of that? Or was it like, were you actually doing more kind of information technology work that, you know, was maybe more directly translatable? Hmm. I can't speak for the recruiters, but I did in my presentations when I did apply for jobs and had to rely on that to speak to what I was doing for the last eight years. I did talk about the um, emotional impacts and sense of identity that older adults have as they move from independence to dependence. There's a shift where they become almost no longer people um, because there is a system that they just kind of insert into, which is the social healthcare system. And they have an orbiting team of healthcare providers or technology that guides them through their home, uh, blocks them out of different places. And they're, in some cases, non-vocal because they can't talk anymore. But even when they can talk, they remain silent and that was my experience with them was that they were non, they were no longer people. Um, and instead they were part of a, an assembly of technologies that like shunted them around to different places. Um, and there was a lot of anxiety for people that were on the cusp of that, that that was their future and they would do anything to not succumb to that situation. Yeah, and I think understandably so, right? And, um, you know, it's interesting yeah. <laughs> that... I would uh, too. Yeah, no, I... I yeah, I, Obviously, uh, not having that conversation every day, but, uh, you know, the thought of it is always a little... <laughs> the thought of yeah. aging is always a little difficult. Um, now, you continue doing some work in public health, and mm-hmm. was that work, you know, that... Uh, Again, was that sort of related at all to tech or? It did not relate to tech. So the work was more focused around research for um, like Medicare, Medicaid, um, other like governmental organizations. And I ended up being on a number of projects, one of which included a lot of focus groups and um qualitative data analysis and a report write-up and a lot of it other than that was um, going through literature reviews and identifying keywords and then marking a spreadsheet as yes or no that that keyword was present. Um, So it didn't feel like it was a, a very engaging exercise of my uh, mental capacities at the time. Uh, So I wanted something a little more engaging. So what I find interesting about all of this, though, is 
you know, so, you know, the PhD work is, I mean, of course, we know that a lot of companies, they don't always look at sort of graduate studies as, you know, as you already said, like, despite all the years of experience, you know, you don't necessarily have the experience that they're looking for. And then you kind of come out and you, you end up in public health where, yes, there's, you know, arguably some research involved, yeah. but not the kind of research you were maybe hoping for, but nonetheless, a little bit of research, but also not quite like what's happening in tech. And then you were able to yeah. pivot into tech, you know, you're able to reframe all of that and pivot into tech, which yeah. of course is, you know, it's great that it happened for you, but I'd like to maybe yeah. hear a little bit more about you know, how you did that and like maybe some of the struggles even as you were applying. And so like how, you know, did you learn anything by going through that process about how you took that? Because... Um, I think what's particularly interesting, as I already said, is like, you know, you left and then went into public health and then to tech. And so you had a kind of a stopover. Some people, they, you know, they graduate and they kind of look around for a while and they make it to tech. But you have this yeah. sort of in-between phase where, you know, you had to kind of help reframe all of that. So, again, I know I sort of said it twice, but any, um, you know, anything that was learned particularly from that that you could share that might help others? Sure. Um Let's see. I, I mean, I didn't know about UX prior, so I, I had no idea what an anthropologist could do other than research in a different way. So because my uh, dissertation was on um, the science of aging, which is gerontology, so I studied with gerontologists in Japan and similarly um, in the United States, had a couple of contacts that were gerontologists. So it was a pretty logical bridge if I, as an anthropologist, study more of the social aspects of aging and can contribute to how to effectively um, communicate the importance of health, like health programs to keep older adults healthy in the United States. That was something I could do. I, like many other anthropologists, had a personal inspiration to study aging, um, which was looking for different role models in how to age gracefully and um, a way to be okay with the aging process. Um, having seen my grandmother uh, go through Alzheimer's and the difficulty of experiencing that through my mother's eyes. Um, and so once I finished my dissertation, that part of my life was kind of done. Um, and I realized I didn't want to keep doing aging. And I definitely didn't want to stay scanning documents for keywords and filling out <laughs> yeah, a spreadsheet. So I had to look for something else. And in looking for that, like typing in the keyword researcher into LinkedIn or Glassdoor, I kept coming across UX research. And the more I read about it, the more I realized that that's, I mean, I do that. Like I did that, I do that, that's me. So it was a matter of getting, getting the language I had to translate between first anthropology to public health, which is like 50% of the way then from public health to UX, which is like another 50% where you put in some like, you know, other keywords like passion for the user or works well in ambiguity. Um, 
like things like that. And then it was like just Tetris pieces fitting into place. There's still no quantified impact there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, we can, I mean, we can talk for an hour about what is, what is quantification and what is impact. And I probably won't arrive at an answer. Yeah, I know. It's, it's funny. I mean, I, you know, even when coaching people, I often do try to tease out, you know, sort of numbers be, um, because there is such a bias towards seeing that kind of stuff in resumes, but there's oh an irony gosh, yeah. in it, you know, like coming out of like, you know, a program where you're more or less most of the time, at least, right. Most people are kind of focused on qualitative. Of course, some yeah. people get into more kind of mixed methods, but, um, so there's a sort of an irony in, in teasing that out, but but there is, of course, a, you know, many ways to do it, including like you know, how, what's the funding of you know the, behind the PhD, right? And uh, in yeah. terms of giving a scope of the size of the project and how many participants, and you know, there's there are is lots of tangible things in like the research yeah. that especially you know PhD students do, um, but even you know master's students who have applied projects, you know, and there's there is really good stuff in there to 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 bring into the resume, but it is. At first, kind of, there's always like a little resistance there, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. But um, also, you just don't even know that you're supposed to translate that stuff. Like, I didn't even think at the beginning, like, oh, I designed, executed, and analyzed a qualitative study that involved 120 older adults in a foreign language. Was like, that's like just one statement. And it's like, I mean, that shouldn't earn me like a senior UX researcher position <laughs> anywhere, like automatic pass. And <laughs> yeah, I would think, but need a few more bullets. Um, I know. Yeah. One bullet. <laughs> so, um, so now pivoting, you know, to UX. So you had this interest in emerging technologies. Um, and so you end up working in conversational AI Right, and I'm kind of skipping, you know, the anthrotech experience here, but you you end up working in conversational AI, which is you know super cool. It's 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 emerging now. There's obviously probably you know lots of sort of questions to dig into there, of which some of which are I'm sure concerning uh, in terms of like greater <laughs> impact, you know. But it is yeah. nonetheless, you know, from a, if you're interested in emerging tech, it's obviously a fun tech to sort of be involved researching and playing with, and so. Is there anything particular about that 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 interested you? You know, is there uh, anything reason to move from health to that, or um, yeah, did you just sort of stumble into a you know cool opportunity? Uh, I kind of stumbled into that. I I did originally want to get into like AR and VR because I wanted to get in in more into physical like wearable technology um, where there is a whole body. Uh, beyond just like how people think about it or behave around it. Um, And I've always been interested in creating new forms of interaction, creating new types of mental models. Uh, I didn't know at the time that conversational AI would bring that experience, but it did ultimately. Um, it, It was, especially with the technology like, Alexa, where people are newly starting to interact with it. They're trying to push the boundaries of that engagement. Um, A lot of, there was a lot of question on a lot of hypotheticals around how people would 
respond and how people would um, interact with this technology, this identity. And uh, you can't just ask participants, like, what would you do? Or what would you, like, how would you react? Um, and so I kind of came up with a good formula for getting pretty close to how they would earnestly respond and react by building out a full picture of their expectations, their, um, the existing mental model that they were applying and what that meant for how they were going to at first interact and respond and then how we could incrementally build from there um, and educate and inform. Um, and it's something that I still apply even in cloud technologies when we're thinking ahead of a new product launch, how, how can we ground it in the present but still have a cl close proximity for the future hypothetical of that interaction. While working with conversational AI, I know you had the opportunity to contribute to a patent. And so obviously we can't go into the details of the patent. However, what I'd like to maybe pick your brain on is, is you know, like with the role of a UX researcher and contributing to a patent, you know, because there's all these... Um, you know, there's all these opportunities for us in an organization that are often, you know, that we're not maybe realizing yet. That's maybe the opportunity to contribute more to strategy or more to leadership. And so, you know, as uh, you're the first person I've had the opportunity to talk to, at least that I know has, it will be, you know, has contributed to a patent. I'd like to get, you know, you know a little understanding of um, you just, you know, how you think you can bring you know, the work you did, again, not the details of your work, but like, you know, the process and the way of thinking to contributing to something like, you know, intellectual property. Yeah, I mean, I could, I can talk kind of a broader circle around that research as well, because I have published on it in a Medium post about conversational AI and the work that I did with, this was with Live Person, where we were working on, um, customer support chatbots and um, some of the conversational ML algorithms that train the AI to react and respond. And um, they sold a, a software as a service that, that can be implemented by different companies to build out um, a conversational design and a chatbot for their specific company. So there is um, it's like a whole product as well as like the chatbot. Um, and so I was doing research there, uh, on kind of what I brought to the table, I guess, was the realization that you can't just create the chatbot without looking at the interaction between the agent, which is the customer service representative and the customer as like two parts of the same coin. So almost like a dialectic, if you will, um, except there's no master or slave in this situation. Um, but they're equal parts conversational partners and the context of that conversation is built through their interaction. And so rather than training an ML algorithm solely on uh, the agent's input and your assumption of how the customer will respond, instead train the algorithm on the dynamics of that conversation as the two parties, how they pair together um, and incorporate that into the software as something that you could validate and quality check as an agent going through the conversation. Um, and so that was the 
the basis for the patent. Um, I worked closely with engineers to um, one engineer in particular to brainstorm this based on the research insights from um, UX research that I performed some foundational work. And yeah, it was really interesting and exciting to have a seat at the table and think about real implications of qualitative research on that the core product that the company is is building and selling. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, so often, um, you know, so a lot of researchers don't always get to have that seat at the table. Some don't even really get to see kind of, uh, you know, the their their insights really even translate to anything. You know, it might get sort of watered down or even left out you know, in the product yeah. process, depending on the sort of organization, uh, the organization of the team, I should say. And so that, you know, being involved in that is really interesting. Is there anything that you learned, you know, from contributing to intellectual property that you think, you know, all of us researchers should be thinking about? And, you know, is there anything that you would maybe suggest to somebody else to do? Mm. I mean, it's, yeah, that's a difficult one. Uh, I don't think that I have any kind of special sauce, but I am very persistent when it comes to the interpretation of my research insights. So by persistent, I mean, I want to make sure that people are interpreting it appropriately and not just appropriating parts of it for their own purpose. So I will in basically invite myself to meetings um, by being like, what's going on in there? Or where are you going now? Or um, like telling people they need to include me uh, so that I can be the advocate for what are the material implications. And also even outside of my research, if there's a conversation going on, where someone's saying, well, users don't like this or users won't, users are going to do X, Y, and Z. If there isn't a grounding in actual data, qualitative or quantitative, then that's an opportunity to advocate for like even bringing awareness. Like, hey, you don't know this. You don't know that that's how people will respond or like we have assumed that um, these companies know their users best and can craft a conversational AI that will be relatively successful to accommodate uh, customer service questions and needs, but they're not conversational designers and they're not agents most of the time. They're different users, so um, different job roles. So there are all these like contextual factors that you wouldn't think to think about much like I didn't think to think about UX as a job career because it wasn't made available to me. Do so, you know, aside from being persistent and sort of making sure that you're, you're in the room. One of the things, you know, I find is it's not just in like, say it's not just being in the room at like the start. Right. But it's oftentimes sort of reminding everybody over a long period of time, you know, constantly sort of, shopping the findings around, making sure that you really persistently stay in front of them, even for something you did, you know, somewhere in the past. Um, yeah. 
And so, you know, obviously making sure that you are in the room as frequently as possible helps. But there is still, yeah, there's always the problem that we seem to have, like anthropology has this problem. Yeah, terribly so. But even, uh, you know, broadly speaking, you know, our, it seems like our industry has still the problem of trying to convince others of the value of our research. And depending on, you know, the team you're working with and the kind of like the biases of the organization, you know, that, that's, you know, maybe more or less so. Um, I've heard like sort of so- stories that of, of organizations which were, say, started by designers, which are, have a tendency to be maybe more friendly, whereas like some that are started by engineers, like there's almost like a culture that grew up around that of sort of like engineer kind of quant bias, right? And so depending on where you are, we may or you know have to uh, advocate for our work more frequently or not. Um, yeah. And so I'm wondering, like, you know, have you experienced any of that? And like, how do you approach that? How do you communicate it? You know, because you've now gone through a few translation exercises in your career. You know, and so I'm wondering what kind of, you know, what have you learned that might help others better sell their results within the organization? <sighs> Move somewhere where there's already a centralized practice of UX and extend the middle finger and peace out. (laughs) Um, I mean, it is exhausting. Like I, anytime I get a new team or um, like a new member on a team that doesn't have experience, you forget like there's, um, I would say selective amnesia of um, having to, go through all the basics of like, no, I am not a designer. I, I don't just do usability tests. Yes, I can create a user journey, but there are other tools I have in my toolkit. Um, yes, you need to read the whole report. Please do attend some of the sessions. Please don't interrupt the, like, um, I don't know how many times I've, like I've worked with somebody for like a whole year and then they asked me to do design, like to just mock up some designs. And it's like, I literally worked with you for forever on this project as a researcher. And now you are asking for designs. When did this, like, how did I, anyway. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm constantly doing translation work and I, I end up for lack of a more applicable word mansplaining um, the difference between qualitative research and quantitative research and how even quantitative research applies numerous analytical lenses to derive significance that renders it even questionable if some of those insights are valid because you could do enough massaging with with it that you could find anything. Um, So, or like a survey is almost as dangerous as it is beneficial depending on how you structure it and no I'm not going to do a usability study because you don't even know who your user is so there's all of this like I'm the subject matter expert and that is my job and um, if they don't know and they want to work with me then I have to educate them and they need to take the time to try and understand yeah, which sadly doesn't always happen. So it, it is. It doesn't always happen. <laughs> it, you know, it can be challenging still. I mean, of course, there has been, you know, over the past period of, you know, more recent period of time, a growing 
growing interest and understanding of what we all do, but it is not even close to where it would be for, say, a designer. Um, you know, yeah. Our maturity level is still sort of far behind the, the you know the design teams, which are hired first. So, you know, for anybody listening, there is, of course, work to do in our space, mm-hmm. but it is doable and we do get to make some good impact here and there. And so um, I'm wondering if I can ask this, I'm not sure if you can answer or not, but in the conversational AI, AI space, um, well, actually, first quick question, was it was it for B2B or B2C? The- so the um, Amazon was B2C live person was B to B to C. Got it. Um, Because business to business to the customer. Yeah. So I'm just curious, and you you don't have to speak which company you did the research at, or if you can't answer it, that's fine. But I'm wondering, do you find that people like dealing with chatbots? (laughs) You know, and and like other, you know, whether, well, say Alexa, like whether it's like, you know, a voice interface or like on the sort of the support side, like a chatbot, I'm just curious to know, like, you know, if that's a good experience for people. Uh, I went through a lot of chat transcripts and, um, some people are really angry, uh, and some people are really hilarious, but interestingly enough, when you do interview people about interacting with a conversational AI, like a chatbot, they're like, yeah, it makes sense. Like I you know, originally looked through your FAQs. I didn't find the answer. And if I want to call someone, like the, the chatbot will take me there if they can't answer it. Um, so they, they seemed reasonable with talking to a chatbot. I went in checking my bias at the door, which is that I vehemently hate talking to chatbots. And why would you ever be like... Like actively try to talk to a chatbot, except to, I don't know, have a have a laugh. Um, so, I was kind of shocked to find that the people I did speak with were like, "Yeah, this this is a this is what I was looking for." Yeah. Obviously, uh, my experience doesn't say anything about the greater. Yeah, about the greater population. But what I have found is, is if I get stuck in a dead end of only tech, it has not been enjoyable. But like you said, the ones where if I can't get my answer, then I can get you know basically human on on the you know, in the chat window. Yeah. It it that never bothered me so much, um, you know. And but getting stuck there and not getting any answer and having no other recourse and feeling like there's no other way to get in touch with, with an organization has been very frustrating in the past. Um, you know, but I could, I, so I guess where I'm, where I'm, what I'm trying to get is I can see like, you know, the efficiency that it can bring to sort of narrow down. Um, but still it does seem like one of those things that when you do need to talk to a human, right. I mean, it's such a support is such a sort of human endeavor in many ways, right. Yeah. To people helping each other that it, seems like when you need that when you need that help uh it is nice to be able to reach out to, to an actual human in the end but um I, I there's no to... money in that right? like that's <laughs> yeah. that was kind of like the 
like everyone understood it, even the customers, like they're like, well, it's in the company's favor to have chatbots because they don't have to support live agents or outsource live agents. And so there is this temporal aspect to it of I can have this conversation with the chatbot for either immediate help or support or also deferral. Like if the chatbot can't help me, it creates a log and a living agent will reach out to me either in email, by phone call, or through this chat to support me. And that was the most like successful um, mix of like, hey, I'm going to throw my complaint out there. I don't have to get all like frustrated because I'm having an argument with a chatbot um, and just wait for somebody to come back and help me. Yeah, it's funny that what you brought up there because in my uh, in my graduate research, which was on genetics, I found an interesting thing where people, it's just like you said it in many ways, people understood that companies were going, well, even though they didn't read the, like, the terms of service and privacy policy, and many of them did not realize that their data could be used for a whole slew of things, they then <laughs> came to like an acceptance of it because it sort of made yeah. sense from the company perspective. Which is interesting how we then, um, you know, and, and maybe, maybe this extends to many areas, but it's interesting how we then sort of rationalize it from the economic perspective, but in favor of yeah. the company, as opposed to, know. you know, our own, um, you know, our own needs and benefits. Uh, probably a whole, whole big conversation in its own right and, and one for another time, but. Oh, well, I've I, seen that though, like broadly in research, like just people, like um, users or customers um, will basically blame, like take on the onus or take on the blame. And I'm not talking about any specific research, just generally research um, will take on the onus and the blame for like, I probably just don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Or um, I'm probably just looking in the wrong place. Or maybe you're already doing this and I just haven't found it yet. So there's always this... Um, like willingness to take on the blame rather than accuse the company of having like mistaken or overseen, like overlooked some aspect. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's definitely something to keep in mind, um, you know, the way they rationalize that. And so that brings up, um, so speaking of, you know, researching with, you know, with users of systems. So you mentioned sort of B2B, b um, you know, B2C and B2B2C. But now at Google, you're doing B2B. And so, you know, there's differences in that type of research. And, you know, again, we don't have to go into the specifics per se of the products and the findings, but I'd like to maybe touch on like what that research looks like because uh, I get to work on both and mm. um, they are both interesting, but they both are a little, you know, they're different. There are... Um, you know, challenges in each, for sure. Um, and so it's it's the kind of thing that when I'm like sort of coaching somebody, you know, not every, it's one of those things that I think somebody should understand, like what kind of products they want to work on, who, who are the quote unquote users, right? Who are the humans that are going to use it? Um, because even though the type of research you get to do and who you really might have access to or not, changes in those situations. And like the way even they, the, some of the expectations around what these products should do for you change. Like, again, the kind of like the rationalization we are just talking about. And so I'm wondering, 
in your experience, you know, now that you're sort of working in B2B with cloud, have you learned anything by switching and going, you know, directly in that space that's sort of different from anything that touched consumer before? Yeah, I I would say context is is much more significant. Um, like previously, context was about like the physical environments and um, like other other things like their um, technological prowess and familiarity with new technologies. With cloud, it's no longer an individual that is the sole agent or has the agency um, to power their behavior and their decisions. There's more, um, more of like a polyvocal influence to their behavior where you're looking at the company, their, um, their bottom line, their culture, organizational structure, their technological press, let alone the individuals. And um, and even their philosophy, like there's companies that have different philosophies and it comes out in how they're making decisions with purchasing and using technologies. So it becomes in an interesting way more complex because you have to untangle a lot more variables to identify the locus of change or loca- or like the the source of of behavior um, and intentionality but it also makes it a lot more frustrating sometimes because um like you do have to go the extra mile to make sure you're reaching the right people um there's always a buffer layer like there's sales representatives there's agents that are like correspondents and handlers of the customers and you have to work through them to get the right people or you have to work through a recruitment agency and they, it's kind of like a crapshoot what you end up with. Like you could get somebody that says they use these three cloud providers and then you talk with them and, you know, it turns out that they just installed Google Cloud yesterday on their home computer. And so they got into the study um, and you just wasted, you know, $75 and an hour of your time. Um, so it, it just makes everything more more of a process and more of a labor of love. I I like it because yeah, I don't know, I like complexity as maybe other anthropologists might find that they are called to com- complex spaces to find out like poke it, figure out what's going on under the surface and <laughs> find the pulse. Sure. Yeah. You know, it is interesting. And th- there's a lot of opportunity to look at the power dynamics in it all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned organizational culture. And so I've always found it interesting. And you also kind of said, like, who do you get access to, right? And so yeah. you know, there's there's like the leadership that might not want you to have access to certain people for maybe because it reflects poorly on them. Or like there's the, the, you know, the yeah. sort of boots on the ground that don't want to say something because they're scared of what leadership might think, right? And just, there's all these interesting... Uh, just you know the, the the politics of it becomes very interesting, and if you're in, you know if you're intrigued by that stuff, it is quite fun. Though it is sometimes, yeah. like you said, you know it's it's sometimes hard to get to the right people to really find out what you need to find out. 
Um, yeah. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's not one of those things that's better or the worst per se, right? It's, it's just different, but it, it is interesting. And uh, I think a ripe, you know, so, so frequently it's the consumer products that are sort of flashy that catch a lot of attention, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in sort of news. But the, I think the B2B space is actually a really good one for anthropologists, particularly because of, you know, some of those organizational components, you can think of like bringing like a more kind of classic, like organizational anthropology in as much as like sort of like some of the design anthropology elements that, you know, overlap nicely with UX. And so it's a, I also think just related to that, I think like product management is a great space for anthropologists because again, you know, you're sort of servant leader, you're sort of pulling together all these teams that you don't directly lead. And so you got to understand sort of how to work together, be the culture broker. And so there's, uh, there's yeah. a lot of areas that it doesn't always have to be UX research, you know, or it doesn't just have to be contributing to sort of usability, right? It, it is, you know, you can contribute to intellectual property, to strategy. You can work in these organizational spaces. Um, there's there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of room out there for us for sure. Uh, and yeah, you know, one of the things about the podcast, I'm hoping to kind of you know tease out all of that. So I'm glad that you know we got to just briefly touch on you know B two B a little bit. One of yeah. the other things I'd, I'd maybe like to, you know, to hear more about. Um, so you're on, you know, a panel coming up on Tuesday. Yeah. So this event, um, obviously, this being July, um, it's Pride Month, and just in the nick of time, we're having an event about Pride in UX in particular. So myself and other uh, UX professionals are going to be talking about their experiences and. Um, both positive and negative with being being in being in a in a position of being genderqueer or transsexual or being a group that isn't often um, identified and uh, given space and voice to talk. Um, so. Like the example I always give is, is like, there's tons of like women in tech events going on. And I, I get invited to these. Um, I'm a non-binary person and I get invited to them because they're supposed to be diversity, equity, and inclusion events that are for women in tech and, but anyone can join. And that's kind of, that's not okay. (laughs) Um, like I'm, I don't want to just be a part of somebody else's movement. I don't want to be just a part of, um, you know, and women in tech and other groups. And so this is really about like, let's bring attention to what those and other groups are. Let's, let's speak out and talk about what it, what it's like to work in a company, what it's like to, um, advocate for your identity and, um, what are some of the concerns that others that work in this profession have around that? And and one thing in particular that I wanted to talk about was also, um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about like empathy in UX and this often call to action that you UX professionals have to be the user's advocate um, and to build empathy for the user, but it doesn't really capture the um, humanitarian and um, human rights um, call to action that empathy in a broader uh, world context does today to 
understand the situation that people are um, as a whole person engaging with um, society and their sense of self in society. And I just don't use empathy anymore. Um, I try not to use empathy because I, I don't, like, we don't need to use the word empathy. It's just because it's sexy and it has this indexicality to, like, humanitarian and human rights. So that's not what we're doing. We're time on task and, like, user needs and making a profit for a company. So... Well, let's not cheapen it. So that's something I'll talk about. <laughs> you know, it all sounds interesting. Uh, so just quick thought from you. Um, so, you know, it's funny because despite like the uh, critique of the word empathy, as you said, we are you know, supposed to be, you know, giving voice to, you know, all these quote unquote users, right? All these humans out there. Um, yeah. But the... You know, the industry itself is not always like the most inclusive and, you know, our research panels are not always the most inclusive. And so aside from, you know, being better in our hiring and the way we discuss identity and like being better in like, you know, our, our recruitment, um, what do you think, you know, what do we really need to do? I mean, of course, you know, uh, the the things I said are important, but is is there something else that like that we can take the conversation further than that, you know, and and, and um, you know have a kind of critical conversation, but also one that leads to like very sort of tangible outcomes, like or, or tangible next steps. Man, um, I feel like then I would have like the key to the city um, if I had an answer to that. Uh, I I. I don't, I actually don't have an answer of like, the only thing that I know to do is, is what I can, which is to take part in these events and to, because I, I have learned that I'm more of an, more of an outgoing person than most people, even though I would not characterize myself as outgoing, I'm more vocal and I can then at least be a voice and a face for others that are in a position or in a place to to be a voice and a face and represent um, what I hope would be a growing number of people that, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's a, a political move. Like I, I identify as non-binary because I don't think there should be any need to identify as any one thing. Um, gender-wise and so rather than take on a host of presuppositions about who I am as a person because I am classified as a woman um my political move is to say well no you can't classify me as a woman or a man I'm non-binary and I don't know what that means and you don't know what that means and you'll just have to deal with me and I'm just going to talk and talk and talk until other people start talking and then I'm just drowned out by the general consensus. So, yeah. So oftentimes, yeah, there are many people who are interested in such, you know, interested in like, you know, bring their voice out. Maybe they're, you know, disempowered for some reason. You know, maybe they sort of lack, you know, 
avenues to do this. And, and so I'm wondering if other people want to contribute to the conversation like you are, you know, your event is with Tech Circus. So maybe that's mm-hmm. some space that people can look in the future. But where else might people want to like kind of contribute to this conversation that would be helpful? I think at, at their workplace, um, that's a good place to start. It's it's a good time. Um, there's a lot of uh, public scrutiny on companies to do right by their employees. Um, HR is HR, but they also have to tow the company line. So if there's enough of a groundswell of voices, then I think that standards and perceptions and expectations will start to have to shift with it. Um, So educating, learning, like even for this, like talking at events for me, I'm learning, like this is a new space for me and I'm sure I'll mess up and say stuff that's just as bad as um, what we're trying to talk against and become a better person for it. So talk about it, talk to others about it, um, be schooled, uh, be aware is the best that we can do at this point. Alexander, thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Um, I guess the last thing, though, is, of course, you know, if somebody wants to reach out to you, where can they find you? Um, they can mail me via snail mail. Oh, no, I'm joking. Um, LinkedIn would be a good place. Uh, I'm still quasi-active on there. I'm trying to trying to get away from it, but that's a good place to hit me up, and from there, we can take it off to a different channel. Very cool. Great. Well, thanks. Appreciate your time. It was great talking with you. Yes, thank you so much, Matt. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotoux.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.